Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. The Desideratum podcast celebrates stories, the art of telling, and the journey of listening. With narrator Teresa Bakken and her author, artist, and wordsmith friends. Episode 23. This is a story about a, an aging Catholic priest. His name is Father Nathaniel Kerrigan. He is a Vietnam War veteran, and he becomes embroiled in a case of potential um, demonic possession. A young boy comes to see him at his church to let him know that his sister is possessed. And so he reluctantly agrees to help because he's a good person. That's what he, he does. So he investigates and he, and he comes to the realization that the girl truly is possessed. And that frightens him a lot because he doesn't want to deal with demons who are able to see people's deepest, dark secrets because there's something in his life that he hasn't spoken to anybody about and he's not ready to. So he reaches out to an old friend and mentor of his and um, that's Monsignor Carmichael. He reaches out to Carmichael. Carmichael insists that they meet in a nature preserve. And so the very first scene is where they meet um, to get things started. This is Frank Oliva. He's written a chilling novel about inner demons, past and present. It's called Walking Among the Trees. And you'll hear the first scene in just a few minutes. But first... Listen to what Frank says about how the story was shaped by secrets, vulnerability, blind faith, and questions about fate. And one of the things that I remember as I was reading the story is there's something about the brother that feels like coincidence. Like, how does he come to that place to talk to that priest? Can you, can you talk about how you wrote that, what your thoughts were about that? Sure. So I wanted to leave it a little bit mysterious, but I think I also wanted the reader to get the sense that was Harut, did Harut land at Kerrigan's church for a reason? And I think the answer to that question is really what the whole book is about in essence, right? So yeah. you know, Kerrigan sort of needs to decide or figure out, is this, what is his path? And, and the if Harut was in the right place at the right time, does that mean that he should really go on and perform the exorcism? So I wanted to leave it sort of an open question about whether Harut was in the right place at the right time and a question that Kerrigan is trying to figure out. I really enjoyed that. It made you think about coincidence and fate um, and how people, how we cross paths with people. Yeah. Um, I liked that element of it. When we meet the mother, that character her sense of religion and faith blind her or prevent her from seeing what seems clear to others before, what seems clear to the brother, right? And so um, I wondered why, why you used religion that way or what you were thinking as you, as you created her character. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, having her roots mother being unable to see what's going on also sort of makes him more vulnerable too. Right, he's sort of like alone yes. in this, and no yes. one else is able to see what he sees and believes it so deeply. 
and he's sort of alone. And then he goes to see Father Kerrigan for help. And even Kerrigan doesn't want to believe him at first. You go to a lot of detail in um, the icons of religion in the house and her, you, you get the feeling as you're reading it, that she has a deep sense of faith yes. and that there's an irony in that, you know, right. that there's a demon, there's an evil in her home. Um, yeah. It's almost like she's a sufferer, but she's also blind, which is kind of interesting too. She just can't see what's around her. She's so wrapped up in yes. the idea of her faith that she just can't see what's, what's around her. You know, it doesn't make you dislike her. You don't right. dislike her. You are sympathetic with her and your heart kind of breaks for her, you know, that she isn't more in tune. So I thought it was a great way to write her, her blindness oh, to what was happening. So that's the first storyline, the exorcism. The second storyline that you are telling is told in flashback as they are, you know, walking together, the two priests. And it's, it flashes back to Vietnam uh, yes. during the Vietnam War. And one of the things that struck me was how nature uh, is also foreboding. The jungle is dangerous. The elements are deadly. And I thought you, you did that in both scenarios. Like, where did those details come from in the jungles of Vietnam? So in order to make sure I was genuine enough to leave the suspension of belief intact, I had to be more careful about, about those scenes. And I'm not sure quite why that is. I guess I imagined, what if a veteran read this and read the Vietnam scenes? And I, I remember I wanted to get that right. So I, I did research, not exactly what happens in the book, but similar. And I remember the jungle played into a big part because you had, there's so many places to hide. And the Viet Cong were really good at that, you know, just yes. sort of sprouting out of nowhere and, and, you know, just killing many Marines before they could even be found. And obviously there was a parallel between the jungle and the woods that Kerrigan and Cromark were walking, but there was that sense of danger that I wanted to create too. Um, and yeah. and the, the plants and the trees and the marsh that we see in there, I felt all added to that. Yes. Um, the setting becomes part of what is unsettling yeah. in the story. Yeah. And I think you also incorporate some, what do they call that? A, a jump scare when you're in the yeah, movies, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 So what, where did that come from? Well, I was very deliberate about them and there's not many, right? There's only a couple. I didn't want to overdo it. That was one thing too, because I didn't want this to be uh, how do I just say like a like a slash slasher like horror kind of I wanted more of like a slow burn creepiness to it I think you found it, you struck a very good balance in storytelling and the creepiness factor one of the themes to me that sin or that evil builds on itself so that you could have like a a lie of omission a, a dishonesty that builds to something else that builds to something else. And I think in the confessional is where you kind of lay that out. And the priest has a conversation that with someone who's, who's there to confess. And can you talk a little bit about that and what, for you, what the purpose of that scene was in your, sure. in, in revealing what you wanted to about the characters? Sure. The, the scene that you're referring to is the scene with the, the gambler, right? So we find that Kerrigan is in the confessional a man comes in who starts off confessing about, you know, one thing and then 
as Kerrigan sort of peels back the layers and, and listens to the details of the story, he starts to think, well, this doesn't really fully add up. And he finds out that there's more than just what the man came in to, to confess about. Mm-hmm. And it, that goes to your point, Teresa, about how, like, when once we know his story, which is that he's basically, he's gambling. And to support that habit, he's kind of stealing from his job. He's an attorney. We, we see how, like, one sin necessitated or led to other sins right so he's gambling he needs he needs money to support that and now he's stealing from his his work but what i meant to in that scene and how it sort of developed over the various drafts was to sort of create an irony there where kerrigan is helping a man face his demons and and face not the demons he's just willing to talk about but the ones that are really underneath the surface and mm-hmm. this is something kerrigan can't do despite yes. the fact that he's a Catholic priest. And that's what his whole, his whole gig is about, really. That, that's what I was trying to create. You know, I, yes. that was the goal, was to create that irony. Yeah. I think that the essence of getting under the truth through the revelation of secrets, you know, peeling that back is, is one of the main themes of the book to me. So let's, let's set up the scene. We're going to listen to the very beginning of the book, uh, partly because there were very there were very few sections I could choose without um, <laughs> without giving things away. So we'll let people listen to the very beginning of the story. This is Walking Among the Trees by Frank Oliva. As Father Nathan Kerrigan sat on the half-rotten wooden bench overlooking the natural pond in front of him, a smoldering Marlboro cigarette he'd forgotten about burnt the tips of his fingers and fell to the ground. Kerrigan, a 65-year-old Catholic priest and Vietnam War veteran, quickly stomped out the cigarette with his foot. He removed a white handkerchief from the inside pocket of his dark overcoat and used it to pick up the cigarette butt, depositing it carefully into the wire trash receptacle next to the bench he was sitting on. He went back to staring out into the sky, past the ducks floating on the pond and the children chasing them with their radio-controlled model boats, his thoughts lost in the dark gray clouds, which were hovering in the distance like harbingers. Though at 65, Kerrigan was beginning to feel his age, a life of discipline and restraint kept him strong and healthy. He made every effort to eat well, he trained with weights and ran for miles, and he seldom consumed alcohol. Kerrigan's discipline, a practice he learned from the Marine Corps and honed through the priesthood, influenced all aspects of his busy life. It showed in his physical appearance, his short and silvering goatee always well-kept and immaculate, for example and in his judicious use of time. An early riser, Kerrigan's mornings and afternoons were spent tending to mass, confessions, and other pastoral duties. The hours in between were for volunteer work at local VAs and children's hospitals. An hour each night was reserved for exercise, another for prayer. If there was any time left before Kerrigan retired for the evening, He might watch that night's episode of Jeopardy! on playback. That program had grown on him years earlier, 
when he spent his evenings tending to his cancer-stricken father, who would hurl insults at Mr. Trebek from his sofa chair when he got the answers wrong. If Kerrigan had one vice, it was the cigarettes. He picked them up again only weeks earlier, after a twenty-year hiatus. He mulled, lighting another, but the minute hand on his wristwatch showed five to eight, which meant the man he was there to meet would soon arrive. That he was smoking again was a fact he wished to keep to himself. So he double-checked that his pack of Marlboro Reds was tucked safely inside his overcoat and spritzed himself with aftershave. Then he went back to thinking and waiting. Kerrigan had been sitting on the bench for over an hour, at times rehearsing in his mind the conversation he was about to have, and others staring thoughtlessly into the cool autumn sky. Though he was there to meet his trusted mentor, a man he'd known since he joined the seminary nearly forty years earlier, and with whom he'd confided many things, Kerrigan was terribly nervous. Somehow, he'd become so wrapped up in his own affairs, he hadn't called or written to his old friend in over two years. And now here Kerrigan was, out of the blue, about to ask favors. That thought continued to swirl in Kerrigan's mind as a gust of wind rustled the leaves hanging from the towering trees above his head. A blackbird fluttered down from one of the trees and landed next to Kerrigan on the bench, startling him so badly he jumped in his seat. As the bird took to the sky, Kerrigan noticed a dark figure approaching from one of the dirt trails converging on the pond. He stood up and squinted through his reading glasses. At first, he wasn't sure he was looking at the right man. But when it was clear he was, Kerrigan felt awash with concern. The man, hunched inside a dark overcoat similar to Kerrigan's, had aged significantly since Kerrigan saw him last. Though the man was nearing seventy-seven, after all, he'd always been strong and healthy. A seasoned boxer, the old man could be found in Catholic school gymnasiums, jumping rope with students just two years ago. Yet now he approached with the assistance of a cane and an obvious limp and he looked several shades grayer. As the distance between the two priests narrowed, Kerrigan made a conscious effort not to let the worry show in his face. Monsignor Carmichael! Father Kerrigan! The Monsignor bore a wide smile that stretched the many more lines showing on his weathered face. It's good to see you, it's good to see you too, Monsignor. Kerrigan leaned in and hugged Carmichael, mindful not to interfere with his cane. From up close, it was even more apparent Carmichael lost serious ground. His thin, silver hair had receded even further, and Kerrigan could feel through Carmichael's bulky overcoat that he'd lost a good deal of weight. Kerrigan also noticed a small patch of razor stubble sprouting from Carmichael's pointed chin, which was uncharacteristic. Carmichael was always dutiful about keeping a clean shave. 
The two priests embraced each other for several moments before separating. Shall we walk and talk? Carmichael asked. Are you sure? Kerrigan didn't realize it, but his gaze was trained squarely on Carmichael's cane. What? This? Carmichael raised his cane off of the ground for Kerrigan to examine. Since when did you start using a... Don't worry. Carmichael thumped the cane back into the soft earth beneath their feet. I've had it a couple of months now. The doctors keep telling me I need hip surgery, and I keep telling them I do not. Kerrigan smiled, a hesitant smile. While Carmichael's aversion to doctors and medical advice didn't surprise him, he knew there was more going on than a bum hip. He also recalled hearing, through the grapevine, that Carmichael recently canceled a trip to Spain, one he discussed making for years. Come on, Carmichael insisted. Let's walk. I have a feeling it will do us both good. Where? Kerrigan looked at the pond just in front of them and into the surrounding trees. Another gust of wind ruffled the trees, sprinkling golden-brown leaves into the pond. Kerrigan eyed the various trails. They seemed to burrow infinitely into the woods. Kerrigan had never visited that particular nature preserve and had no idea where they led. He'd had a hard enough time finding the pond. It was Carmichael who had chosen the preserve for the meeting. Let's do one of the trails. Carmichael nodded toward a trail just behind Kerrigan. How about that one? Looks as good as any. Kerrigan twisted around. The trail stretched further into the woods than he could see. You know the way? No, not really. Haven't been here in years, actually. What if we get lost? These trails probably go on for miles and end up who knows where. Carmichael leaned into his cane with one hand and waved dismissively with the other. Don't worry. We can always turn back. Besides, I'm told there are beautiful live oaks for us to see. I've always liked live oaks. Kerrigan only nodded, though he felt compelled to yield to Carmichael's wishes, since he was the one taking the elder priest's time. The prospect of losing hours in the woods made him nervous. He didn't have hours to lose. Kerrigan hesitantly followed Carmichael's lead. I'm sorry to trouble you on such short notice, Monsignor. There's no trouble here, Nathan. None at all. Leaves crunched beneath Kerrigan's feet. Though it was barely September, the dirt trail was covered by a layer of brittle leaves. It seemed the trees inside the nature preserve were further along in their shedding than elsewhere. Kerrigan could feel the cooler air. Listen, Monsignor, I know I haven't called in a while. I just... Carmichael grabbed Kerrigan's forearm and stopped him in place. Never mind all that. Something troubles you, 
something serious. What is it? Kerrigan paused. Is it that obvious? Carmichael chuckled. Well, aside from the fact that you reek of cigarettes, I knew something was off the moment you called and asked to meet in private, away from both our parishes. Kerrigan blushed, then sniffed his overcoat. He really thought the aftershave would do the trick. Carmichael tugged on his arm and eased him forward again. Ah, Nathan, you should know by now that all the perfume in the world can't cover up that stench. Besides, how long have we known each other now? Thirty years? Almost forty, believe it or not. That's how long ago I was in the seminary. You know, even after all this time, sometimes it's still hard to believe I'm a priest at all. I just... Nathan. Carmichael tugged once more on Kerrigan's arm. What's really on your mind, hmm? What's got you all twisted inside? That's why we're here, isn't it? Carmichael looked up toward the sky. Among the trees? Kerrigan stood silent a few moments, while Carmichael waited with watchful eyes. I need to ask you a favor. I hate to ask. I really do. But I don't. I just... What is it? Kerrigan hesitated again. He looked once more into Carmichael's greenish-blue eyes and was overwhelmed with shame. Two whole years, and he hadn't once thought to call. Not even a lousy text message. He took in a breath and sighed. The bishop, he wants me to do something. Something I cannot do. One of the other things that we notice in this first scene is the cigarette smoking. Um, There's a compulsion to smoke. And so his compulsion is clearly connected to something. Do you want to talk about how how you wrote that, how you incorporated that particular vice of cigarettes into the story? Sure. It was a couple reasons. One of the things was I wanted to paint Father Kerrigan as sort of a very disciplined person in general. Cigarettes is sort of a vice from his past. And the demon sort of uses the, brings the addiction back on him to sort of zap him back into his past and and put him in a vulnerable spot. That was the idea for me. It clearly is connected to the, the turmoil as he's, as he's, as he's telling his story. There's something creepy about the cigarette smoking. Like it actually just felt, it felt like he was driven to it, that he was called to it in a way. And like you said, it, it helps transport him back to something very vulnerable, um, which is part of what keeps you, keeps you reading to find out what that is. (laughs) Well, thank uh, you. See, I, again, I wasn't sure if I overdid that because he's really chewing on the cigarettes like one after the other, after the other, after the yeah. other. Yeah. yeah, no, it creates a great visual. Um, the other thing too, I'll just add real quick is that it, it, it also, it's like a, it's a, there's a dependency too, right? So it's almost like without the cigarette, he can't even function on a basic level too, right? And I, I kind of mm-hmm. wanted that to be part of it too. Yes, you can, 
you can feel him losing control. Like you paint him as, as you've said, a disciplined and controlled person. And there's something about the cigarette smoking that lets you know, as a reader, he's not quite in control. Yeah. Yeah. That he is lost in these memories. And that kind of gets to what I think is the other big theme of this is that there's this idea of secrets, deep secrets, dark secrets at their heart. Uh, They eat at us. Um, They represent an evil. And in this case, in in your story, there is there is an actual evil that's sort of taking advantage of those dark secrets. Was that an intentional uh, part of of your storytelling? Yeah. So. I, I actually think that was the main goal of the story that that's where I kind of started with. That's where I started, you know, even years ago when I first wanted to write a, an exorcist, exorcism story. So um, I was in high school when the exorcist was re-released in 2001 and I was working at the rectory of my local parish. And so I ended up speaking to the, one of the priests there about the film. And um, one of the themes that resonated with him and also with me was the idea that the demon trip you up and keep you off balance and and sort of um, make you an ineffective exorcist was to use your dark past against you. Yes, I I like that you tapped into into his deep past, you know, back a long way to find that that truth that's bothering him, that sits with him in a way that it makes him vulnerable to evil. I think you did a good job making the priests seem human. There's, there's smoking. We talked about there's cussing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think you do a very good job from the very beginning of making them just two men of faith, two men in friendship, uh, two men who have, as you describe it, good hearts. You know, yeah. they're people that try to do the right thing. So you had, you had two storylines. And you're unspooling it in a way that develops um, terror, fear, right? A- uh, anxiety in your reader, right? You're, you're leading us down this path. How, what was that process like for you? To get to the, so from, you know, just putting pen on the paper for the first time and then finishing all the editing with the publisher, that was four years um, I, and I had to write it on the train, you know, because I commute back and forth to the city from Long Island. Um, I would work long days in the in the city as an attorney, and then sometimes come home, write for an hour. Um, on the weekends, when my kids were napping, I would write. So it was a lot of sacrifice. It really was. Um, and I and I wonder if I wonder if sometimes that actually helped me get the slow burn right because I had so much time to think about everything. Um, you know, so it was a lot more, it wasn't, I wonder if the book would have come out a lot differently if I had five days a week to write it and I wrote it a lot faster. I wonder if it would have came out differently, you know, thinking about it, Hmm. but in terms of getting the pacing right and the, and the terror that came through editing. I mean, I edited at least um, three or four times on my own, um, from start to finish and then with more with the publisher. And I didn't get it right the first time either. There were, I remember I spent a lot more time in Vietnam than I probably had to. So that was one issue where we, we really condensed those scenes and, and made them short. Mm. And quick. So it was a lot of editing. I think editing is really, really powerful. Yes. I love what you just said about it. it would be a different book if you, I feel like that is so 
that's so true of a lot of things is there's not a perfect time to work on things. Yeah. Um, and that sometimes the time we have is exactly the time we need. Yeah, yeah. I think that might have been true. Well, there's one thing that I like to ask all of the authors that uh, share some of their time with me is, and you could respond to this as you, uh, as an author or as a husband or father, um, an attorney, <laughs> is for <laughs> you, what is essential? Pursuing your dreams, I think. And so many of us get caught up in our careers and we, I think a lot of people don't truly love what they do. And there's always a pet project that they want to tackle sometime, someday. Mm. But if you wait, I, I, I fear you're never going to get around to it. It would have been reasonable for me to say, well, I'm too busy right now. I have, I'm teaching. I just had twins. Because I wrote this, you know, at the beginning of my, my son and daughter's life, basically knowing that it was going to be crazy, <laughs> but I had to do it. I was, it was in my soul. I needed it to come out. And mm. I think if I waited, it would have caused me a lot more pain than writing it did, even though that was painful and, and you know, difficult too. So yeah. that was just me, but I, I, I hope that, you know, like my kids take this away too from all this is that you have to chase your dreams. Don't let them die. You know, and I feel like that's what might happen if you keep on putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great essential thing. It's funny when you're a parent, a lot of your essential things become something you want to share with your kids. Like this is something I have figured out <laughs> and your children are still very young, but it, they become their own people and they make their own mistakes. But I think there is always space. There's always room to say, you know, here's here's something I learned. Here's something I figured out. Here's what I think is essential to know and following your dreams, making space for that, no matter how busy you are is, um, is a great life lesson. I like yeah. that. I'll put a link to Frank's social media and his website in the show notes. So you can find the book and get the rest of the story. A special thanks to Annie at World of the Right Review for connecting me to Frank. And thank you for listening.